brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that supports life and family. 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite charity. Mention offer code TRADITION for a special Christmas offer. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. Given the times, I figured it would be good at, for this weekend educational material to, at least for the time being, begin focusing on heresy once again. There are a lot of heresies rampant in the church today. I saw one priest in one of the news videos I made in the last couple of weeks describe what we're going through today as the heresy of pastoralism. You could call that a, just another aspect of modernism, really. But the idea is that you play down the gravity of sin and the need to be nice to people so that they will come into the church. You essentially confirm them in their sins with the hope that they will be convicted interiorly and they will come home to Rome. It's an interesting idea. Um, there's no basis whatsoever in reality that you can convict someone of their sins by confirming them in their sins. But such is the logic of what they would call pastoralism, or just another version of modernism, really. But modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, as defined by Pope St. Pius X. And to understand why it's the synthesis of all heresies, I thought it would be good to start looking at some ancient papal writings and ancient writings of the magisterium. And so I am going to show you the two, let a two letters that are part of the debate between St. Cyril and Nestorius. Nestorius was the founder of the Nestorian heresy. He did not believe that Jesus Christ was true God and true man, one, you know, one person with two natures. Instead, he believed that there were two. It was there were two separate entities, essentially, in Christ. It's an ancient heresy. We see it uh, prop up today, not so much in Catholicism, although I have seen some modernists say some pretty wild things about the nature of our Lord. But you do see this among Protestants a lot. Um, in fact, also tomorrow, uh, the writing I have from uh, one of the doctors of the Church also delves into something that we. Uh, see also from a lot of modern American Protestants, which is unfortunate. But let's turn our attention to the two relatively short letters. The first is from St. Cyril trying to correct Nestorius, and the second is the response Nestorius gave to him where he outlines his terrible ideas. The second letter of Cyril to Nestorius, declared by the Council of Ephesus to be in agreement with the Council of Nicaea. Cyril sends greeting in the Lord to the most religious and reverend fellow minister, Nestorius. I understand that there are some who are talking rashly about the reputation in which I hold your reverence, and that this is frequently the case when meetings of people in authority give them an opportunity. I think they hope in this way to delight your ears, and so they spread abroad uncontrolled expressions. They are people who have suffered no wrong, but have been exposed by me for their own profit. One, because he oppressed the blind and the poor. A second, because he drew a sword on his mother, a third because he stole someone else's money in collusion with a maidservant, and since then has lived with such a reputation as one would hardly wish for one's worst enemy. For the rest, I do not intend to spend more words on the subject in order to not vaunt my own mediocrity above my teacher and master or above the fathers. For however one may try to live, it is impossible to escape the malice of evil people, whose mouths are full of cursing and bitterness and who will have to defend themselves before the judge of all. But I turn to a subject more fitting to myself and remind you, as a brother in Christ, always to be very careful about what you say to the people in matters of teaching and of your thought on the faith. You should bear in mind that to scandalize even one of these little ones that believe in Christ lays you open to unendurable wrath. 
if the number of those who are distressed is very large, then surely we should use every skill and care to remove scandals and to expound the healthy word of faith to those who seek the truth. The most effective way to achieve this and will be zealously to occupy ourselves with the words of the Holy Fathers, to esteem their words, to examine our words, to see if we are holding to their faith as it is written, to conform our thoughts to their correct and irreproachable teaching. The Holy and Great Synod therefore stated that, 1. The only begotten Son, begotten of the Father according to nature, true God from true God, the light from light, the one from whom the Father made all things, came down, became incarnate, became man. 2. Suffered, rose on the third day, and ascended to heaven. 1. We too ought to follow these words and these teachings and consider what is meant by saying that the word from God took flesh and became man. For we do not say that the nature of the word was changed and became flesh, nor that he was turned into a whole man made of body and soul. Rather do we claim that the word in an unspeakable, inconceivable manner united to himself hypostatically flesh enlivened by a rational soul, and so became man and was called son of man, not by God's will alone or good pleasure, nor by the assumption of a person alone. Rather did two different natures come together to form a unity, and from both arose one Christ, one son. It was not as though the distinctness of the natures was destroyed by the union, but divinity and humanity together made perfect for us one Lord and one Christ, together marvelously and mysteriously combining to form a unity. So he who existed and was begotten of the Father before all ages is also said to have been begotten according to the flesh of a woman, without the divine nature either beginning to exist in the Holy Virgin or needing of itself a second begetting after that from his Father. For it is absurd and stupid to speak of the one who existed before every age and is co-eternal with the Father, needing a second beginning so as to exist. The Word is said to have been begotten according to the flesh, because for us and for us our salvation he united what was human to himself hypostatically and came forth from a woman. For he was not first begotten of the Holy Virgin, a man like us, and then the word descended upon him. But from the very womb of his mother he was so united and then underwent begetting according to the flesh, making his own begetting of his own flesh. In a similar way, we say that he suffered and rose again, not that the word of God suffered blows or piercing with nails or any other wounds in his own nature, for the divine, being without a body, is incapable of suffering, but because the body which became his own suffered these things, and he is said to have suffered them for us. For he was without suffering, while his body suffered. Something similar is true of his dying. For by nature the word of God is of itself immortal and incorruptible, and life and life-giving. But since, on the other hand, his own body by God's grace, as the apostle says, tasted death for all, the word is said to have suffered death for us, not as if he himself had experienced death. As far as his own nature was concerned, it would be sheer lunacy to say or to think that, but because, as I have just said, his flesh tasted death, so too when his flesh was raised to life. We refer to this again as his, as his resurrection, not as though he had fallen into corruption, God forbid, but because his body had been raised again. So we shall confess one Christ and one Lord. We do not adore the man along with the word, so as to avoid any appearance of division by using the word with, but we adore him as one and the same, because the body is not other than the word, and takes its seat with him beside the Father. Again, not as though there were two sons seated together, but only one, united with his own flesh. If, however, we reject the hypostatic union as being either impossible or too unlovely for the word, we fall into the fallacy of speaking of two sons. We shall have to distinguish and speak both of the man as honored with the title of son and of the word of God as by nature possessing the name and reality of sonship, each in his own way. We ought not, therefore, to split into two sons the one Lord Jesus Christ. 
Such a way of presenting a correct account of the faith will be quite unhelpful, even though some do speak of a union of persons. For Scripture does not say that the Word united the person of a man to himself, but that he became flesh. The Word becoming flesh means nothing else than that he partook of the flesh and blood like us. He made our body his own, and came forth a man from woman without casting aside his deity, or his generation from God the Father, but rather in his assumption of flesh remaining what he was. This is the account of the true faith everywhere professed. So shall we find that the Holy Fathers believed. So have they dared to call the Holy Virgin Mother of God, not as though the nature of the Word or as God had received the origin of their being from the Holy Virgin, but because there was born from her his holy body rationally and sold, with which the Word was hypostatically united and is said to have been begotten in the flesh. These things I write out of love in Christ, exhorting you as brother and calling upon you before Christ and the elect angels, to hold and teach these things with us, in order to preserve the peace of the churches and that the priests of God may remain in an unbroken bond of concord and love. Thus concludes the letter of St. Cyril to Nestorius. Second letter of Nestorius to Cyril, which was condemned by the Council of Ephesus. Nestorius sends greeting in the Lord to the most religious and reverend fellow minister Cyril. I pass over the insults against us contained in your extraordinary letter. They will, I think, be cured by my patience and by the answer which events will offer in the course of time. On one matter, however, I cannot be silent, as silence would be in that case very dangerous. On that point, therefore avoiding long withstandingness as far as I can, I shall attempt a brief discussion and try to be as free as possible from repelling obscurity and undigestible prolixity. I shall begin with the wise utterances of your reverence, setting them down word for word. What then are the words in which your remarkable teaching finds expression? Quote, The Holy and Great Synod states that the only begotten Son, begotten of God the Father, according to nature, true God from true God, the light from light, the one through whom the Father made all things, came down, became incarnate, became man, suffered, rose. These are the words of your reverence, and you may recognize them. Now listen to what we say, which takes the form of a brotherly exhortation to piety of the type of which the great Apostle Paul gave an example in addressing his beloved Timothy. Quote, Attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Tell me, what does attend mean? By reading in a superficial way the tradition of those holy men, you were guilty of a pardonable ignorance, you concluded they said that the word who was coeternal with the Father was passable. Please look more closely at their language and you will find out that divine choir fathers never said that the consubstantial Godhead was capable of suffering, or that the whole being that was coeternal with the Father was recently born, or that it rose again, seeing that it had been itself the cause of resurrection of the destroyed temple. If you apply my words as fraternal medicine, I shall set the words of the Holy Fathers before you, and you shall free them from the slander against them through them against the Holy Scriptures. I believe, they say, also in our Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. See how they first lay as foundation, Lord and Jesus and Christ and only begotten and Son, the names which belong jointly to the divinity and humanity. Then they build on that foundation the tradition of the incarnation and resurrection and passion. In this way, by prefixing the names which are common to each nature, they intend to avoid separating expressions applicable to sonship and lordship, and at the same time escape the danger of destroying the distinctive character of the natures by absorbing them into the one title of son. In this Paul was their teacher, who, when he remembers the divine becoming man and then wishes to introduce the suffering, first mentions Christ, which, as I have just said, 
is the common name of both natures and then adds an expression which is appropriate to both of the natures. For what does he say? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so on until he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. For when he was about to mention the death to prevent anyone supposing that God the word suffered, he says, Christ, which is a title that expresses in one person both the impassable and the passable natures, in order that Christ might be called without impropriety both impassable and passable, impassable in Godhead, passable in the nature of the body. I can say so much on this subject, and first of all, that those holy fathers, when they discuss the economy, speak not of the generation, but of the Son becoming man. But I recall the promise of brevity that I made at the beginning, and that both restrains my discourse and moves me on to the second subject of your reverence. In that I applaud your division of natures into manhood and Godhead and their conjunction in one person, I also applaud your statement that God the Word needed no second generation from a woman, and your confession that the Godhead is incapable of suffering. Such statements are truly orthodox and equally opposed to the evil opinions of all heretics about the Lord's nature. If the remainder was an attempt to introduce some hidden and incomprehensible wisdom to the ears of the readers, it is for your sharpness to decide. In my view, these subsequent views seem to subvert what came first. They suggested that he who had at the beginning been proclaimed as impassable, incapable of a second generation, had somehow become capable of suffering and freshly created. As though what belonged to God the Word by nature had been destroyed by his conjunction with his temple. As though people considered it not enough that the sinless temple, which is inseparable from the divine nature, should have endured birth and death for sinners. Or finally, as though the Lord's voice was not deserving of credence when it cried out to our elder brothers, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He did not say, destroy my Godhead, and in three days it will be raised up. Again, I should like to expand on this, but I am restrained by the memory of my promise. I must speak, therefore, but with brevity. Holy Scripture, wherever it recalls the Lord's economy, speaks of the birth and suffering not of the Godhead, but of the humanity of Christ. So that the Holy Virgin is more accurately termed Mother of Christ than Mother of God. <sighs> Hear these words that the Gospels proclaim. Quote, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. It is clear that God the Word was not the son of David. Listen to another witness, if you will. Quote, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Consider a further piece of evidence. Quote, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, she was found to be with the child of the Holy Spirit. But who would ever consider that the Godhead of the Only Begotten was a creature of the Spirit? Why do we need to mention the mother of Jesus was there? And again, what of? Quote, with Mary the mother of Jesus, or, quote, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and, quote, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and, quote, concerning his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Again, Scripture says when speaking of his passion, quote, God sending his own, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And again, Christ died for our sins. And, quote, Christ having suffered in the flesh, and, quote, this is not, quote, not my Godhead, but, quote, my body broken for you. Ten thousand other expressions witness to the human race, that they should not think that it was the Godhead of the Son that was recently ended by the flesh, which was joined to the nature of the Godhead. Hence also Christ calls himself the Lord and Son of David. Quote, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Jesus answered and said to him, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. He said this at being indeed son of David according to the flesh, but his Lord according to his Godhead. 
The body, therefore, is the temple of the deity of the Son, a temple which is united to it in a high and divine conjunction, so that the divine nature accepts what belongs to the body as its own. Such a confession is noble and worthy of the gospel traditions. But to use the expression, except as its own, as a way of diminishing the properties of the conjoined flesh, birth, suffering, and entombment, is a mark of those whose minds are led astray, my brother, by Greek thinking, or are sick with the lunacy of Apollinaris and Arius or other heresies, or rather something more serious than these. For it is necessary for such as are attracted by the name propriety to make God the word share, because of the same propriety, being fed on milk, in gradual growth, in fear at the time of his passion, and in need of angelic assistance. I make no mention of circumcision and sacrifice and sweat and hunger, which all belong to the flesh and are adorable as having taken place for our sake, but would be false to apply such ideas to the deity and would involve us in just accusation because of our calumny. These are the traditions of the Holy Fathers. These are the precepts of the Holy Scriptures. In this way does someone write in godly way about the divine mercy and power. Quote, practice these duties, devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. This is what Paul says to all. The care you take in laboring for those who have been scandalized is well taken, and we are grateful to you both for the thought you devote to things divine and for the concern you have, even for those who live here. But you should realize that you have been misled either by some here who have been deposed by the Holy Synod for Manichaeism or by the clergy of your own persuasion. In fact, the church daily progresses here and through the grace of Christ. There is such an increase among the people that those who behold it cry out with the words of the prophet. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. As for our sovereigns, they are in great joy as the light of doctrine is spread abroad. And to be brief, because the state of all, the heresies that fight against God and of the orthodoxy of the church, one might find that the verse fulfilled, the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker, and the house of David grew stronger and stronger. This is our advice from a brother to a brother. If anyone is disposed to be contentious, Paul will cry out through us to such a one, we recognize no other practice, neither do, neither do the churches of God. I and those with me greet all the brotherhood with you in Christ. May you remain strong and continue praying for us, most honored and reverent Lord. That second confusing mental gymnastic thing you heard was the letter of the heretic Nestorius in response to the letter of St. Cyril trying to correct him. The first letter was short and made the point. He reiterated the basics of the Godhead, of the basics of the incarnation, of the hypostatic union, in terminology that should be easy enough to understand for anyone who cares to read them. After all, he was a bishop. His job is to teach. And the language he used would have been readily understood by most believers of the day. Nestorius, on the other hand, he kept saying he was going to uh, write in the spirit of brevity, meaning he was going to keep it short, and then proceeded to write a long-winded letter in response that was um, engaging in the kinds of mental gymnastics we are quite used to seeing from a lot of modernists today. I sometimes think that we should include in an analysis of modernism the tendency to engage in this mental gymnastics, this bending over backwards to show how erroneous ideas are actually orthodox. It's one thing that it seems that St. Pius X left out of Pashendi, and that no serious theologically-minded scholar has actually tackled in their analysis of modernism. Perhaps somebody much more equipped to do so than I am could tackle that aspect of the heresy, this tendency to bend, one, bend oneself backwards and into knots to try to justify erroneous ideas, while then insulting the interlocutor, or your debate opponent in the process. That was just the first part. I believe the first letter and the second, the first letters of 
Nestorius and Cyril were both lost to history, or at least they're not in the compendiums that I have, so it is what it is. I will eventually bring you the next part of this as this debate continues, because the more you look at ancient heresies, the more it becomes quite aware that there's nothing new under the sun. I have seen in the last week Protestants online chastising Catholics for belief in the hypostatic union. Again, it is what it is. Well, let me know what you thought of all this in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So does sharing this on social media. That helps a lot, too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.